Well, hear the word of the Lord from the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all, say those two words with me, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Today we're going to begin a series of message that I've entitled, Oriented to Jesus. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to do what I could never do on my own. Enable me to preach and teach your uncompromised truth with your uncompromising love. Father, I pray that you would prepare the soil of each of our hearts so that it would receive the seeds of truth and lead to a harvest of righteousness, wholeness, abundance in each of our lives so that we might have seed left over to sow in the lives of other people who today are broken and desperately need Jesus. So for the welfare of your church, for the advance of your mission through the church, for the sake of those who need Jesus, instruct us through your word and prepare us to engage our culture with the good news of Christ. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. Today I want to begin a sincere attempt at addressing what is easily one of the most polarizing issues in society and in the church, the issue of homosexuality. It has led, sadly, to division within families, division between friends, division within churches, division among churches, as well as division within our society. Now, I'm aware that some might be thinking, Pastor, in a world that's so horribly disfigured by poverty, unrelenting, grinding poverty, in a world visited with so much violence, in a world beset with so much corruption, why are we going to spend several weeks looking at just one area of sexual morality, especially one that generally involves activity between consenting adults? Seems a bit misguided, Pastor. Well, obviously, I don't agree with that, or we wouldn't be launching into the series. And here are three reasons why I don't agree. First of all, Scripture is very, very clear that our sexual conduct matters greatly to God. And anything that matters to God should matter to us. There is far more to life than our sexual experience, but it is a very important part of who we are as God created us and God designed us. And remember, God isn't opposed to sexuality. He invented it. It was his idea. But he has spoken specifically about how sexuality is to be used to enhance our lives and the lives of a significant other partner rather than being indulged in for selfish purposes. So our sexual conduct matters greatly to God, and so it should matter to us. But secondly, the debate surrounding homosexuality is more than a debate about sexual morality. 
It's a debate about the authority of Scripture. That's the issue behind the issue. That's the more significant issue. That's the bigger issue, the authority of Scripture. It's not just about the bedroom, it's about the Bible. That's why the conduct of a single-digit percentage of the population garners so much attention. In many ways, I was thinking this past week that the emphasis upon gay rights is really a modern Tower of Babel. And by that I mean it has become the symbol of man's attempts to throw off the sovereignty of God and replace it with the sovereignty of man. It's all about ultimate authority and the authority of Scripture. And if the church in the face of unrelenting demonic and social pressure gives ground in this area by essentially abandoning the authority of Scripture or subjecting the interpretation of Scripture to culture rather than the Holy Spirit, we will find ourselves unintentionally complicit in idolatry. And we will find ourselves very hard-pressed to claim divine authority anywhere, including the matters of salvation, the identity of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, and the kingdom of God. Once you give away the store of the authority of Scripture, you have given away everything. And there are lots of folks eager to give away the authority of Scripture today. One of the most popular movements in our culture that I've referenced before, MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. It's the belief that there is a God and He somehow created us, but then He essentially walked away, leaving us with just two commandments, treat one another well and feel good about yourself. Now that's not biblical faith. That's not what Jesus died to commence. That's not what Jesus died to make possible. And missing in moralistic therapeutic deism is the authority of Scripture. It's just essentially man replacing God. I said before, and I'll probably say it again, that in matters of morality, we either submit to God's Word as the final authority, or we make God small and ourselves large by determining our own way. There does come a point in life where if you're a believer, you have to say, you are God, I am created being, I obey you, I worship you, you set the agenda, not me. Third, God is on record that he's not willing that any should perish, that he wants to make all things new, that he wants to take the broken and make them whole again. He wants to take those who are in bondage and set them free. And he has instructed his church to declare his gospel to every people group and make disciples of all the nations. And in light of that, God's people must be equipped to offer a compassionate but uncompromised. And yes, honey, those two things can go together in the same sentence. 
a compassionate but uncompromised witness to those who are damaged by sin, including the sins of counterfeit sexuality. As we'll see in some of Paul's writings, homosexual increase is not the cause of decay in a culture. It's just the inevitable fruit of the spiritual decline of a culture. Wherever a culture declines spiritually and moves away from the authority of God to the authority of man, there is always an increase in counterfeit sexuality and sexual brokenness. And so in many respects, the increasing homosexuality that we see is an increasing victimhood in a culture that has continually turned its back and progressively turned its back on God and upon His Christ and upon His Word. You see, deeply embedded within each one of us is a God-given desire for wholeness and intimacy. It was meant to draw us to God and to one another in loving, righteous relationships. And if God is not filling that void, then something else will fill that void, including counterfeit sexuality, including homosexuality. So let me put it succinctly. Gays need the gospel. That's why we're talking about this. Gays need the gospel. And the way that we proclaim it to them will greatly shape and influence the way we proclaim it to many other groups of people in our increasingly secularized culture. You've got to witness differently today than you did in 1940. If you're still witnessing the way you did in the 50s, and a lot of you weren't here in the 50s, but those of you that were, if you're still witnessing the way you did in the 50s, you're just missing people left and right. There was a time when you could begin assuming that people believed that the Bible was God's revelation and that we ought to live our lives according to faith in God. Uh, those assumptions are no longer in play. So to put it differently, if we don't learn how to witness effectively to the gay community, we're probably not going to witness effectively to any community. We're going to be left talking to ourselves when Jesus has entrusted us with his life-changing gospel. See, churches really struggle to witness where the gay community is concerned. Some compromise truth in the name of compassion. And others compromise compassion in the name of truth. The first tell the wounded that they're actually very well, which is spiritual malpractice. The second either shun the wounded or just want to shoot the wounded and wish that they would go away. And both fall far short of the response that Jesus would want from us. In addition, many of you have friends and family members who are involved in the gay community or the gay lifestyle. And if your church can't help you relate to them with compassion and yet uncompromised truth, then we're not doing our job. We're failing you. So we want to put into your hands a biblical understanding and a biblical mindset that will help you to be an ambassador of good news to people who need to hear the good news. So what we believe about homosexuality, what we communicate, how we communicate it, has broad implications for the church. 
Now that being said, today we're not going to begin jumping into texts, but instead we're going to establish a context. Because if you just start grabbing verses out of Scripture, you can prove anything you want. People have been doing that for centuries. And I want to erect what I'm calling the framework of truth. The slide will show a house under construction, and I'm going to make eight statements, and I want you to think of these eight statements as framing up our discussion that will continue over the next several weeks. Statements of truth that influence how we interpret God's Word in this matter and how we respond to God's Word in this matter. And the first statement, our identity should be based on God's Word and our relationship with Him, not on sexual impulses. The latter is a subtle form of idolatry. When you base your identity as a human being created in the image of God on something other than God, no matter what that something else is, that is a very subtle form and expression of idolatry. It is God replacement. It's not God defining you. It's some impulse, some lifestyle, some other belief defining you. That's why I chose Colossians as our launching text. Because it says, whatever we do, in word or deed, we're to do all in the name. That means according to the word of, and according to the pattern of, and according to the teaching of, and according to the person of, and according to the agenda of Jesus. All of our life is to be oriented to Jesus. It's to be defined by Jesus. It's to be devoted to Jesus. It's to be developed by Jesus. And when you shift the ground of your identity away from Jesus to anything else, that's idolatry, whether you shift the ground of your identity to sexuality or to politics or to ethnicity or economy. You can fill in the blank with any number of things, but it is idolatry. We are wrestling with idols in this issue. We are not just wrestling with flesh and blood. A Jesus orientation helps us understand that an attraction to the same sex does not make a human being inherently gay or lesbian. Same-sex attraction is an inclination, an attraction to a certain kind of behavior or conduct, but that doesn't constitute our identity. Because the Bible makes it very clear that everybody in this room was born with an inclination towards sin. Every one of us. Nobody ever had to teach us how to sin. Nobody ever had to instruct us in sin. Nobody ever had to encourage us to sin. We are born with an inclination towards sin. The heart is deceitful. Man apart from Christ is wicked. And yet God doesn't want us defined by that inclination. He wants us to come to Christ and be defined by our relationship to Christ. If an impulse towards a certain form of sin forms your identity, then in addition to the gay community, we should have the hate community, the addiction community, the pedophile community, the adultery community, the fornication community, the greed community, the lying community, the fearful community, the proud community, and the porn community. Because all of those are inclinations towards a certain kind of behavior. 
But we don't say, hey, God made me angry and I'm going to be PO'd all my life because that's who I am. <laughs> God made me jealous and I'm going to be envious all my life because that's who I am. I didn't choose it. I've always felt that way. Same argument, isn't it? Fill in whatever. I've always been a bigot. It's the way I was born. That's the way I'll die. I didn't wake up one day and decide to be a bigot. I've always felt bigoted. So I'm a part of the bigot community. And we demand our rights and our respect. See, many of the arguments in the gay community are intellectual, spiritual, moral insanity. Just like the one, if you disagree with my sexuality, you hate me. Well, then, if you disagree with my view of sexuality, you hate me. Now that we've established we hate one another, can we talk? <laughs> That's intellectual thuggery. If you disagree with me, you hate me. No, maybe I disagree with you because I love you. Did you ever think of that? My father often disagreed with me. He also had the final word. But he didn't disagree with me out of hate. He disagreed with me out of love. See, when Paul wrote to believers who were struggling with sin, he didn't call them sinners. He didn't identify them as sinners. He said, even though you guys are struggling, you are the saints in Christ Jesus, beloved of God, accepted in the beloved, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Now let's talk about some of your conduct that's inconsistent with that. But Paul didn't identify people by their impulses, by their behavior. He identified them in Christ. You know, in the days that the scriptures were written, they didn't even have words that identified people as inherently gay or homosexual. That's all just unfolded within the last 200 years. Mankind's been around for thousands of years. It's just been in the last 100 to 200 that we've actually made words that identify people by their impulse. Prior to that, in ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, Roman cultures, they had words for same-sex behavior, but not that identified people as inherently same-sex. And if you're a believer, as a believer, you should never subvert your identity in Jesus to your sexual longings. Gayness should never trump Christ-likeness. Because that, too, is a form of idolatry. And here's the tragic thing. If you allow gayness to define you, then when God speaks against gay conduct, to you it will feel as if God is rejecting you as a person. And he isn't. See, this is where misguided Christians make mistakes in an attempt to be compassionate. They actually remove hope. And they actually set people up to feel rejected by God. If we say you are inherently this and God rejects this kind of conduct, are we not saying God rejects you? But that's not the truth. God wants everyone to come to faith in him. A second plank in the framework, and the rest will come more quickly, so relax. 
We must interpret our experience in light of Scripture, not Scripture in light of our experience. We're not to come to Scripture looking for an echo of what we already have determined we want to believe. We're to come to Scripture looking for God's revelation of what we ought to believe. There's a big difference. People impose their own agenda on Scripture all the time. And it has happened with this topic. People who begin with the erroneous assumption that a loving God could not condemn homosexual behavior come to the Scriptures, distort the Scriptures, twist the Scriptures, fail to do justice to the text, and come up with the conclusion it's all right in the sight of God as long as it's one partner and you live in faithfulness. But that's not what Scripture says, as we'll see. The Bible is as clear in English as it is in the Greek. And you can't do that kind of violence to the text. Third, we cannot be more compassionate than God, though we do try. See, and I think when we try, it's not about other people, it's about us. We try to be more compassionate than God so we can feel better about ourselves. But all attempts to be more compassionate than God only serve to increase human suffering. There's something very blasphemous about the idea that God, man, I, I hear what you say, but dude, you're just too hard on people. And, and so God, because you're too hard on people, I'm got to sand down the rough edges a little bit. I'm going to make you a little more kind and, and gentler because I know that's how you'd like people to see you. Really. So a little speck of fallen dust has the capacity to be more compassionate than God. If you had that capacity... Gee, why didn't God send you to the cross instead of Jesus? You can't be more compassionate than God. The very thought is an insult to God. Sometimes when we have gay friends, gay family members, we want to dilute the Scripture rather than offend them. But you don't show compassion by condoning what God condemns. You just help people discover why He condemns it. I don't want friends who nudge me towards my own spiritual ruin in the name of compassion, because frankly, I don't need friends like that. I don't need friends that move me towards error. I don't know what universe you define friendship as moving somebody towards destruction, but in this universe, moving somebody towards destruction is not friendship, it's betrayal of the highest order, even if you do it in God's name and in the name of sophistication, tolerance, and compassion. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He hung out with hookers and alcoholics and the bad crowd, but Jesus never played fast and loose with the Word of God. He would hang with anybody to try to show them the love of God, but he never played fast and loose with the Word of God. He never compromised. In fact, here's what he did that ticked so many people off. He said, you think you've been obeying this Scripture? Well, on the surface you have, but it goes a whole lot deeper than that. You have read, but I say to you... So let me ask you, are you more compassionate than Jesus? 
Should Jesus take compassion lessons from you? Come on, let's get real. Should Jesus take compassion lessons from you? But that's the clear implication. Unless, of course, you totally distort what Jesus said and what he said about himself. But then that's not a real Jesus. That's a Jesus of your own imagination. And Jesus said, before I come, there will be many false Christs concocted in the minds and hearts of people. Fourth plank, we must not defend truth in ways that violate it. In anger, disrespect, or self-righteousness. Dr. Martin Luther King said, darkness doesn't drive out darkness. Only light does that. We should never, never relate to people involved in the homosexual lifestyle in a disrespectful way, in an angry way, in a self-righteous way. You see, being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean I'm better than anybody. I'm not. It means I'm better than what I used to be. I'm not better than any human being, but I am better than what I used to be. And in the future, I'm got to be better yet because he who began a good work in me has got to complete it. But I'm not better than anybody. Jesus rarely showed anger towards sinners. He saved his most scathing denouncements for religious people who erected barriers to faith. So if you engage in self-righteous indignation, you're putting yourself right in the sights for God's anger. Not a good place to be. Don't put that target on yourself. The fifth plank, God condemns homosexual conduct, not attraction. The latter constitutes temptation, and temptation isn't sin. As fallen human beings, even though we've been redeemed by the grace of God, we feel many inclinations towards behavior that is sinful. But feeling the inclination isn't a sin if you resist that because of your commitment to Christ. So if you're driving down the interstate and somebody cuts you off and you feel inclined to flip them the bird. Now, I know Christians don't do that. They're just saying one way, Jesus, and they happen to pick the wrong finger. (laughs) Feeling the inclination isn't sin. Acting on it is. You can feel inclinations all day long as long as you say, no, because of my commitment to Jesus. You haven't sinned. You've actually honored God and developed character. What God condemns is not somebody feeling an impulse or we'd all be condemned. He condemns acting on impulses that are contrary to Scripture. Sixth, homosexual conduct is just one expression of human sin and brokenness and is not the worst Please do not make gay people the poster boys for everything that's wrong in the universe. It is so hypocritical and so false. Unbelief, pride, and greed get a lot more play in Scripture than homosexuality. A lot more. In fact, when God said, here's why I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't say because of homosexuality. He said because they were a very affluent, materialistic culture, and when they were wealthy, they didn't care at all about the poor people in their midst, so I destroyed them. The biggest idolatry in the Western church is materialism. That's the biggest idol in the Western church. 
And it is scandalous to rant and rave about homosexual sin as an abomination to God while we excuse other sins that God also calls abominations like pride, lying, stirring up dissension among believers, gossip, dishonest business practices, injustice, and failure to plead for the oppressed. God calls them abominations too. How come we don't hear more about them? Because it's so easy to feel smug picking on 6% of the population about things you've never battled with while you lie to yourself about the things you battle with every day. And that approach smells in the nostrils of God. And any church that wants to engage in that will experience the wrath of God. Seventh, tolerance isn't the chief of virtues, love is. Our culture, always tolerance, 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 as if that's the chief virtue. Well, first of all, this culture doesn't understand tolerance. If you understand tolerance, to be tolerant, you have to first be opposed to something. Otherwise, tolerance is a meaningless term. If you aren't opposed to anything, you're not tolerant. You're morally ambiguous. You have no boundaries in your life. To be tolerant, you have to first be opposed to something. But tolerance is not the chief of virtues. Jesus didn't say, the law and the prophets can be summarized this way, tolerate God and your neighbor. <laughs> he said, love God with all your being and your neighbor is yourself. Love is the highest virtue. Let's get practical here. A good parent doesn't raise their children with tolerance as the highest virtue, but with love as the highest virtue. Because my dad loved me, there were things he would not tolerate. Try parenting with tolerance as your highest virtue. You can visit your child in prison 20 years later. God is intolerant because God is love. And love will not tolerate that which destroys the one who is loved. God is the eternal adversary, passionate adversary of everything that degrades humanity, robs humanity, demeans humanity, deceives humanity, and brings humanity into bondage. Tolerance is not the highest virtue, love is. In a culture where tolerance is seen as the highest virtue, believers are perceived to be on the lowest moral ground. That's where we're at. But let God be true and let man be a liar. And eighth and finally, when addressing homosexuality, two attitudes are essential, humility and love. Humility, because everybody in this room stands in radical need of God's mercy every day. And when you get to the final judgment, trust me, you're not going to say, oh God, you give me everything I deserve. You've got to want grace and mercy. Love, because Jesus said we must love our neighbor as ourselves, including our homosexual neighbor. Thought occurred to me last evening that the church ought to be the last place people would go to hear lies. But the first place people would go to experience love. The last place to go to hear lies, the first place to go to experience love. And when the church is like that, 
it's oriented to Jesus. So you see, this is about more than five or six or seven percent of the population. It's about a hundred percent of the members of the kingdom of God. And what God wants to do in our hearts and what God wants to do through us for the hearts of others. Because he's intolerant of that that destroys. Because God is love. Let's pray together. Father, as we navigate the paths of Scripture, as they intersect with the complexities of culture, give us discernment, give us wisdom, grant us your spirit. Most of all, create in us your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.